Now, somehow Lent always seems to coincide with tax season. You notice this? Uh, this week I read about a former chief of staff, um, lieutenant governor of New York State, and that at some point along the way, this man was found out to owe $300,000 in back taxes. From 2003 to 2008, he failed to file his taxes every single year. And every single year when tax season came around, when there was that kind of urgency of like, you need to file and you need to pay, he, would, he found lame excuses to, to get through each time rather than treat tax day with the urgency that it called for. So uh, when this man was brought to trial, his attorneys claimed that he suffered from a condition known as late filing syndrome. The New York Times reported uh, this at this time, quote, late filing syndrome, sometimes known as non-filing syndrome or failure to file syndrome, is not listed in the Diagnostic, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. A spokeswoman for the American Psychiatric Association said that the group does not recognize late filing syndrome as a psychiatric condition. Now, did this man really believe that he had this, this condition? I mean, maybe he believed it. Um, did the judge and jury believe that this man had it or that this condition existed at all? Definitely not. Um, he had a lame excuse and it didn't fly in a court of law. Um, the urgency to pay his taxes didn't go away with his lame excuse. It got worse. The $300,000 had to be paid along with legal fees and public scorn for the late filing syndrome excuse. Um, now this morning, Jesus is calling us to pay attention to another urgent matter, which is repentance. Repentance. Repentance is, is when we do the 180 degree turn from walking away from God to walking toward God. Where we do a 180 degree turn from living for our own purposes to living for God's purposes. And we have a window of time right now. We have a moment of opportunity to settle accounts with God. That window will close soon, sooner than we may think. And since this is not only going to impact us in the present life, um, it's also going to, to impact the life to come. It is an even more urgent moment than tax day. Um, but like the chief of staff for the New York Attorney General, we are tempted to make lame excuses. I've done it, and maybe you've done it as well. So as we open the Gospel of Luke, let's allow Jesus Christ to lead us to repentance. He's going to do that in a very unlikely way. And the first way that he's going to do that is he's going to actually turn our lame excuses into dire warnings. He's going to turn lame excuses into dire warnings. So let's um, watch him do that now in our gospel text, Luke 13, verse 1. There was some present at that very time who told him, told, told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, what's going on here? Leading up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus um, is teaching his disciples and many, many others about getting right with God before it's too late. He's been teaching them about the moment when their lives would be laid bare and they would either be ready for God's kingdom or they would not be ready for God's kingdom 
with dire consequences either way. This has always been an uncomfortable topic. It's uncomfortable now, and it was uncomfortable for them as well. Now, true to form, some of the people in the crowd suggest changing the topic to other people and their problems, right? Such a temptation. Um, The scandal du jour was that there was a group of Galilean priests who went to the temple to make sacrifices, and while these Galilean priests were in the middle of making sacrifices, Pilate had sent Roman soldiers to ransack the temple and kill them in the process of making the sacrifices. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that a scandal? I mean, that's so gruesome. It's so terrible. Everyone, of course, was talking about it. Now, the conventional wisdom went like this. Because it's one thing to have the event. It's another thing to interpret it. Here was the conventional interpretation of what happened. That those priests probably had it coming. That's what everyone told themselves. Man, those guys, they probably had some skeletons in the closet that none of us knew about. And God made sure that they got their comeuppance in just the right way. Wow. Wasn't that, wasn't that God getting justice for the people who must have been terrible? They must have been so unrighteous. You're familiar with the German word schadenfreude? I talk about it from time to time. Schadenfreude. It's the word where you have joy when you watch other people suffer. Now, you've probably not had this experience. But back then, people had this experience where they watched other people suffer, and they were like, you know what? I feel a little bit better about myself. It's a twisted logic because um, you you watch the downfall of other people, and and it's a total distraction from your own from your own stuff, from your own downfall, from your own from the own ways that you have you have your own skeletons, your own closet. Um, It's a tempting thing for us to take the spotlight off of ourselves and just the crisis that creates and and, and just put it on other people. And and the way they figured out how to do this was people who suffer are the the ones that we can look down on. And it's, the thing about it is, it's a lame excuse. It's a totally tempting but lame excuse to go, well, I might have problems, but other people are dealing with their problems in a much worse way than me. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to turn that lame excuse into a dire warning. He says in verse 2, and Jesus answered them, do you think, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Do you think they were worse because they suffered? No, I tell you, verse 3, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see that? Hey, let me take your lame excuse and let me turn it into a dire warning. Let's turn the spotlight back on you, not not to be mean, but to help you. He's taking away the comfortable blankie of other people are worse than me. He's taking that away and he's going, no, 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 no. You need to get ready Um, because uh, maybe you didn't get butchered in the temple while you made sacrifices. That doesn't mean you're right with God. Don't think that. On the contrary, Jesus says, take a lesson from this event. The death of these priests, it was sudden, it was tragic, it was fatal. They weren't prepared for it. And without God's help, we're in the same boat. 
we're in the same boat. Think about it. Death can come upon any one of us in an instant, and we will then find ourselves before God without any excuses. And unless we repent, Jesus says, we will all likewise perish. Again, this word repent is, um, it refers at least in part to a change of thinking, a change of perspective. Um, not just in theory, but your whole outlook on life. Uh, Pastor John Mark Comer describes repentance like this. Repentance is facing the lies we have come to believe, and that can be terrifying. The illusions we cling to uh, become part of our identity, and with it, our security. They make us feel safe, even as they imprison us in fear. As David Foster Wallace puts it, The truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. And that's what repentance is. It's when the truth sets us free, but has its way with us. It kind of renovates us from the inside out. And Jesus wants all of us to be set free by the truth. But that starts with shifting the energy that we've been using to judge other people and take account for ourselves instead. He, he kind of uh, takes another event from contemporary life and comments on that in a, in a similar way, verse 4 of Luke 13. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, don't think that, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So 18 people, we're near the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. And uh, there was a tower that may have not been constructed well. It wasn't constructed well. Something happened. It fell, and it tragically killed all 18 people. What a tragedy. And everyone was talking about it. And, and you know, they were thinking the same thing that they thought about those slaughtered priests. It was probably their fault. Now we know who the bad guys were. God killed them. And they took false comfort from that. The thinking was, if you, if you die from a disaster, you deserve it. Since you deserved it, I'm morally superior to you. Since I'm morally superior to you, I'll be fine when judgment day comes around. And there's that same twisted conventional wisdom at play here. If you're suffering more than me, you're probably a bad person. Um, you probably don't think that way. Um, but we have our own conventional wisdom, don't we? And I think that maybe for us, we invert it. We don't necessarily say, if you're suffering, you're probably a bad person. We say, if you're not suffering as much as I'm suffering, you're probably a bad person. If you've got more money than me, you're probably greedy. If you've got more power than me, you're probably corrupt. You just grabbed every greasy rung of that ladder and climbed your way above me, didn't you? If you've got more security than me, you're probably not as brave as I am. And generally speaking, you're probably just bad for the environment. You know? We can can judge people who have it better than we do. Now, on the day of judgment... The Lord will not ask us to compare our life with everybody else. That's not going to be his question. He's not going to ask us, hey, what's your hot take on the failures of everyone else around you? 
nor will he accept conventional wisdom, whether it's first century or 21st century. He will not accept any lame excuses. So let us be rid ourselves, let us rid ourselves of soothing ideas that would leave us unprepared for the day of the Lord. You will all likewise perish, Jesus says. Life and death is at stake here. Now, in his mercy, God is giving us time. He's giving us a moment to repent. It's not a lot of time, but it's a moment. And, and so, um, but his mercy does not nullify the call to repentance. Um, our lives will be laid bare before the Lord. You and I are all living and breathing right now. We're, we're, we're not quite there on that day, but it will be soon. And soon we won't be breathing. Soon we will, we will be breathing heavenly air and we'll be before the Lord face to face. And, and we will give an account for wh- what we've done and what we've not done and why we've done it or why we've not done it and, and, and how we've gone about it. And who, who we've lived for, who have we been living for, we'll give an account, and there'll be no one else to give an account for us, and no one else to compare to. We won't give an account for Vladimir Putin. But, but how we responded to the events precipitated by Vladimir Putin, that's what we'll answer for, or anybody else. And the only way to stand on that day is for asking, to ask for the Lord's help now. We can ask for his help now, and that's what the second part of Jesus' teaching is going to address, how to get ready. It's like a, a parable of how to get ready. So he, he turns our lame excuses into dire warnings, but then he's gonna help us turn our painful crisis into a chance to prepare. He's gonna turn our painful crisis into a chance to prepare. Um, here's a story that Jesus told in verse six. Jesus told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And the vine dresser answered the master, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, Jesus is here. What is he doing? He's shedding light on our spiritual condition by telling us about a fig tree that isn't generating figs. It's not, it's not bearing figs. There's no yield. Once upon a time, there was a man who planted a fig tree in a vineyard. He had a purpose for that tree, to bear figs. And then he comes back each year. Each year, he's disappointed And um, he's fed up because the tree is not fulfilling its purpose. And so it's taking up space. And so he decides, cut it down. He gives the order, cut it down. But someone intervenes, the gardener intervenes, the vine dresser intervenes, the man who's tending the tree intervenes and says, wait, can there be a moment of mercy here? Um, Let's dig out the arid, dry soil around the roots of the tree. Let's get... Let's get to the roots where the problem actually lies. And let's put in fertilizer and let's give it a little bit more time and let's see if it bears fruit. Now, here's the meaning of the parable. God planted us on this earth for a purpose. He's got a purpose for your life. He has a purpose for our church. 
He has a purpose for your family. He has a purpose, uh, and he has an expectation um, for us to bear fruit individually and collectively. He wants us to be fruitful. And uh, yet in our, in our selfishness, in our foolishness, well, we stop bearing fruit that God intends, and we start to try to bear fruit that we intend. And God looks at our lives, nothing's hidden from him, and he's like, this isn't what I wanted from your life. Like, I'm expecting more from your church. I'm expecting more from your, I, I do not find the fruitfulness that I, that I gave you to, to bear. There's no yield, there's no figs. And he's like looking for lives marked by the love of God and neighbor, looking for the fear of God, the holy fear of God. He's looking like, is there any open-hearted generosity to the poor? Is there, um, are you forgiving your enemies? Um, Are you taming your appetites? Are you bearing humble witness? Are you growing in maturity? Are you reaching out in mission? Are you protecting the vulnerable? Is there goodness here? Is there truth here? Is there beauty here? Um, Are you ready for the kingdom? If the kingdom came now, are you ready? And it's just a painful crisis when God looks at his tree and he audits it. And he's like, the plain fact of it is that I'm expecting figs and I find no figs. Why aren't there figs? I've given you everything you needed to bear fruit. This is unacceptable, and that's the plain fact. But by the mercy of God, Jesus, the vine dresser, steps in and says, don't cut the tree down. Let this painful crisis be a chance to prepare. Let it be a chance to prepare. Just a moment, a moment of mercy, a window of opportunity. Is there anyone here who likes to garden? Someone, someone here likes to garden. Yes, we got some gardeners. Now, if you work with plants, you know the importance of acting ahead of time, right? When there's a moment of opportunity, if you want bulbs to be rising from the ground like the phoenix in the spring, you got to plant them in the fall. If you want juicy heirloom tomatoes in August, you need to plant them in May and water them regularly. Um, this is agricultural work. It is pruning ahead of time, weeding ahead of time, fertilizing ahead of time. Why? Because it takes time for fruit to emerge. You can't just will it into existence in a day. Um, So action is needed. Action is needed. Ahead of time, action is needed. Wow, there's a window of opportunity. And so there's a moment of action for us, a moment of mercy where the vine dresser is like, Staying the hand of God's judgment, saying, let them get ready, let them prepare. And so for us, it is time to dig around the arid, dry soil of our life and add in the fertilizing grace of God. So for some of us who are still exploring Christianity, this action can be a simple prayer. Lord, I'm ready to surrender my life to you. This is the prayer we ask in the moment of mercy that we have. For my wrongdoing, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, Change my life from top to bottom. Help me bear fruit. I can't bear fruit in the kingdom of God without your help, and he will mercifully answer that prayer. And that's the seedling stage of faith. Then we plant ourselves in the local church to grow our roots. I think one of the most practical actions, for those of us who are following Jesus now, is to 
repent of our isolation. Trying to bear fruit on our own does, just does not work. It's too much pressure. It, it, it's not how God designed us. We are actually in a whole grove of trees. That's how we're designed to bear fruit. Um, being in France at Teze um, earlier uh, highlighted for me how isolated our American culture is. Really, we're very isolated. We live very individualistic lives. And I, I have a family, and, I, and I, I was amazed at how isolated things were when I came back. Um, we need each other. We need each other. The kingdom of God is very relational. And repentance is very relational as well. We repent together. And I, I wonder what it would be like for us this very Lent to, to dig up the arid, crusty soil of our American urban isolation and add in the fertilizing grace that comes through the riches of God's people. Um, can you imagine that for your own life? You know, can you imagine your isolation giving way to some more rich community? You know, if, if think about even just um, giving, giving money to the suffering. You know, we can pool our funds together as a church and send our, our Good Friday gift. We do a Good Friday gift every year. Let's send that to the nation of Ukraine, to people who are suffering there. Let's be generous together. Let's repent of our isolated finances together and give our money to, to, to the suffering in Ukraine. Uh, for those of us who struggle with prayer, myself included, let's pray together. You know, let's join a city group together. Let's pray in community. Let's practice Holy Week together. We can't pray in isolation alone. Certainly, we pray alone sometimes, but we can't completely pray alone. We've got to pray with God's people. What about loving neighbors closer to home? Well, we've got an opportunity for that. We've got an opportunity for hospitality for the suffering. We'll talk more about that during the announcements. What about for those of you, you know, there's just like personal sins. They're choking out spiritual life. They're making you feel dead inside. And you feel like alone in this. You don't have to be alone. Come, come talk to a prayer minister. Or even if you're just feeling spiritually dry, let a prayer minister pray for you during communion today. You know, repentance is a communal process. Let's, let's take action together in this moment of mercy. The vine dresser is giving us a, an opportunity. His grace is here. The action we take now to repent will bear fruit in time. It won't be overnight. It won't always feel great. But in time, there will be fruit that the Lord brings about through his Holy Spirit. And can you just imagine the Lord coming to his tree, coming to the tree of his church, to the tree of your life, being like, I love these figs. Taking a nice big fig from your life, taking a nice big juicy bite of it, being like, man, that's what I intended. That's what I intended. Um, the Lord's mercy is boundless for those of us who come to him. His compassion is is endless, and we'll talk about this next week with the uh, story of the prodigal son. He has a father's heart for us, and he is wide open, and he's waiting for us to come home, and he's waiting for us to be made right with him, and he is, he is ready to forgive. He is ready to pardon. His mercy, as we looked at in Psalm 103, um, his mercy is boundless. Steadfast love is ours. So if we want to be ready 
when he looks at the tree. If we want to be ready for that day, we've got to get ready now. Now is the time to plant. Now is the time to dig. Now is the time to repent. So let's be done with lame excuses. They don't work. Let's take decisive action. God's kingdom is coming. And now is the moment to prepare. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.